Chapter 2 of The Seventh Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Robert Kuyper. The Seventh Man by Max Brand. Chapter 2 Gray Molly. If her soul had been capable of enthusiasm, Marnie could have made the trip on scheduled time. But she was a burrow, good for nothing except to carry a pack well nigh half her own weight live on forage that might have starved a goat, and smell water fifteen miles in time of drought. Speed was not in her vocabulary, and accordingly it was late afternoon rather than morning when Greg, pointing his course between the ears of Marnie, steered her through Murphy's Pass and came out over Alder. There they paused by mutual consent, and the burrow flicked one long ear forward to listen to the rushing of the Doan River. It filled the valley with continual murmur, and just below them, where the brown, white-flecked current twisted around an elbow bend, lay Alder, tossed down without plan, here a boulder and there a house. They seemed marvelously flimsy structures, and one felt surprised that the weight of the winter's snow had not crushed them, or that the Doan River had not sent a strong current licking over bank and tossed the whole village crashing down the ravine. One building was very much like another, but Greg's familiar eye pierced through the roofs and into Widow Sullivan's staggering shack, into Ezekiel Whittleby's hushed sitting-room, down to the moist dark floor of the captain's saloon, into that amazing junk-shop, the general merchandise store. But first and last he looked to the little flag which gleamed and snapped above the schoolhouse, and it spelled, My Country to Vic. Marnie consented to break into a neat-footed jog-trot going down the last slope, and so she went up the single winding street of Alder, grunting at every step, with Greg's whistle behind her. In town he lived with his friend Doug Pym, who kept their attic room reserved for his occupancy, so he headed straight for that place. What human face would he see first? It was Mrs. Sweeney's little boy Jack, who raced into the street whooping, and Vic caught him under the armpits and swung him dizzily into the air. "'By God!' muttered Vic as he strode on. "'That's a good kid, that Jack.' And he straightaway forgot all about that knife which Jackie had purloined from him the summer before. "'Me and Betty,' he thought, "'we'll have kids like Jack, tougher'n leather.' Old Garrigan saw him next and cackled from his truck garden in the backyard, but Vic went on with a wave of his arm and on past Gertie Vincent's inviting shout. Gertie had been his particular girl before Betty Needle came to town. And on with the determination of a soldier even past the veranda of Captain Lorimer's saloon, though Lorimer himself bellowed a greeting, and Chick Stewart crooked a significant thumb over his shoulder toward the open door. He only paused at the blacksmith shop and looked in at Doug, who was struggling to make the print of a hot shoe on the hind foot of Simpson's sorrel, Glencoe. "'Hey, Doug!' Pym raised a grimy, sweating forehead. "'You boy! Easy, damn you! Hello, Vic!' And he propped that restless hind foot on his inner thigh and extended a hand. Yeah, "'Go on working, Doug, because I can't stop. I just want a rope to catch Gray Molly.' "'You red devil! Take that rope over there, Vic. Won't have no work catching Molly, which she's plumb tame.' 
Stand still, damn you. I never seen a Glencoe with any sense. Where you going, Vic? Up to the school? And his sweaty grin followed Vic as the latter went out with a coil of rope over his shoulder. When Greg reached the house, Nellie Pym hugged him, which is the privilege of fat and forty, and then she sat at the foot of the stairs and shouted up gossip while he shaved with frantic haste and jumped into his best clothes. He answered her with monosyllables and only half his mind. Finish up your work, Vic? Nope. You sure worked yourself all thin. Hope somebody appreciates it, she chuckled. Ain't been sick, have you? Say, who do you think's in town? Sheriff Glass. This information sank in on him while he tugged at the boot, at least a size and a half too small. Pete Glass, he echoed then. Who's he after? I don't know, Vic. He don't look like such a bad one. He's plenty bad enough, Greg assured her. Ah! His foot ground into place, torturing his toes. Well, considered Miss Pym in a philosophic rumble, I suppose them quiet gents is the dangerous ones mostly, but looking at Glass, you, you wouldn't think he ever killed all those men. Know about the dance? Nope. Down at Singer's place. Betty going with you? He jerked open the door and barked down at her. Who else would she be going with? Don't start pulling leather for the horse bucks, said Miss Pym. I don't know who else she'd be going with. You sure look fine in that red shirt, Vic. He grinned, half mollified, half shamefaced, and ducked back into the room. But a moment later he clumped stiffly down the stairs, frowning. He wondered if he could dance in those boots. Feel kind of strange in these clothes. How do I look, Nellie? And he turned in review at the foot of the stairs. Slick as a whistle, I'll tell a man. She raised her voice to a shout as he disappeared through the door. Kiss her once for me, Vic. In the center of the little pasture he stood, shaking out the noose, and the three horses raced in a sweeping gallop round the fence, looking for a place of escape, with Gray Molly in the lead. Nothing up the Doan River, or even down the Asper, for that matter, could head Molly when she was full of running, and the eyes of Greg gleamed as he watched her. She was not a picture horse, for her color was rather a dirty white than a dapple. Besides, there were some who accused her of tucked-up belly, but she had the legs for speed in spite of the sloping crop, and plenty of chest at the girth, and a small bony head that rejoiced the heart of a horseman. He swung the noose, and while the others darted ahead stupidly straight into the range of danger, Gray Molly whirled like a doubling coyote and leaped away. "'Good girl!' cried Vic in an involuntary approbation. He ran a few steps. The noose slid up and out, opening in a shaky loop, and swooped down. Too late the Gray saw the flying danger, for even as she swerved the riata fell over her head, and she came to a snorting halt with all fours planted, skidding through the grass. The first thing a range horse learns is never to pull against a rope. A few minutes later she was getting the pitch out of her system, as any self-respecting cattle horse must do after a session of pasture and no work. She bucked with enthusiasm and intelligence as she did all things. Sun fishing. Sunfishing is the most deadly form of bucking, for it consists of a series of leaps apparently aimed at the sun, and the horse comes down with a sickening jar on stiff front legs. 
educated pitchers land on only one foot so that the shock is accompanied by a terrible sideways downward wrench that breaks the hearts of the best riders in the world. Gray Molly was educated, and Mrs. Pym stood in the doorway with a broad grin of appreciation on her red face. She knew riding when she saw it. Then, out of the full frenzy, the mare lapsed into high-headed, quivering attention, and Greg cursed her softly with deep affection. He understood her from her fetlocks to her teeth. She bucked like a fiend of revolt one instant and cantered like an angel of grace the next. In fact, she was more or less of an equine counterpart of her rider. But now he heard shrill voices passing down the street, and he knew that school was out and that he must hurry if he wanted to ride home with Betty. So he waved to Mrs. Pym and cantered away. For over two days he had been rushing towards this meeting— all winter he had hungered for it, but now that the moment loomed before him he weakened. He usually did when he came close to the girl. Not that her beauty overwhelmed him, for though she had a, a portion of energetic good looks and freckled prettiness, he had chosen her as an Indian chooses flint for his steel. One could strike fire from Betty Neal. When he was far away, he loved her without doubt or question, and his trust ran towards her like a river setting toward the ocean, because he knew that her heart was as big and as true as the heart of Grey Molly herself. Only her ways were fickle, and when she came near, she filled him with uneasiness, suspicion. End of chapter 2